Martians. Why is it always Martians? You know, like, how come we're never, like, invaded by creatures from Mercury or Jupiter or something like that? It's always Martians, isn't it? The naked eye extended its vision through instruments that saw the craters on the moon, the changing colors of Mars. Well, you know, there's actually a kind of scientific reason behind that. Mars is the most Earth-like planet in our solar system. I mean, any kind of creatures that would be living on Venus, well, they would have to survive temperatures of 900 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. They'd have to survive pressure that would squish any human flat. Uh, Mars, well, you just got to survive a real lot of cold, not much atmosphere, maybe survive underground. Our Martian fascination started with science fiction writers who looked at Mars through telescope, talked to scientists. They saw a planet that seemed Earth-like, that had these maybe green areas where forests might be and straight lines on it where maybe canals might be. Turns out they're way off on those things. But yet, even though there are no canals, there are no forests on Mars, we're still kind of in this idea of Martians. I'm pretty excited to be talking about aliens and different types of aliens other than Martians, talking about what ETs might look like, might sound like, how do we even talk to them? From the studios of Cincinnati Public Radio, I'm your host, Dean Regis, and this is Looking Up. The show that takes you deep into the cosmos or just to the telescope in your backyard to learn more about what makes this amazing universe of ours so great. Today, I'll be talking with Jamie Green, whose book titled The Possibility of Life was released to rave reviews in April of this year. Astronomers have been studying the universe for thousands and thousands of years. We've got space-based telescopes. We're looking back to the earliest parts of the universe. We're finding planets around other stars called exoplanets. Uh, but we still haven't found life outside of this little blue marble we call Earth. Not even like microbial life, not even like single-celled organisms. We haven't heard a signal. We haven't gotten a postcard. I haven't been abducted. You know, we haven't had no contact. And I know a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, but what about those like alien autopsy videos and all that kind of stuff? I mean, okay, so we've not had any, any legitimate, verifiable evidence of aliens. And so this leads us to a lot of questions because the only way we can kind of imagine life outside this Earth is through science fiction. I brought sufficient equipment from the moon to build several of them. But I do not care to have the Earth people learn the secrets of our weapons. Even going back to the 17th century, you know, Johannes Kepler kind of theorized about what it might be like to live on the moon. And writers from the 20th century giving us these views of Mars and even Venus and other places that have these aliens that are, you know, decidedly kind of human-like. Zarkov's next move will be to land in Phrygia and attempt to secure Polarite, Your Majesty. We know definitely that only those born in Phrygia can withstand and survive the death-dealing cold there. Ordinary humans. Dr. Zarkov and Flesh Garden are not ordinary humans. But we have no actual evidence of any aliens of what they would look like. How are we going to find life? Where are we going to find it? How will we know it even if we see it? Is life a local operation confined to the surface of this one planet? Or is it a widespread activity? 
And boy, these are some tough questions because we have nothing to go on. We have one place in this universe where we know life exists, and that's here on Earth. Earth has a wide, wide, wide variety of life forms. So let's say we go to another planet with a sun-like star like we have. What would the life be like? We have no idea. I mean, not even a clue. I think the part of it that fascinates me the most is if there is some alien creature, could we be able to even identify it as an alien? In fact, that seems more likely than seeing somebody that's like six feet tall, wears glasses, and really likes astronomy a lot. How would we communicate with the aliens? Nobody knows. Maybe they can't talk, or maybe they don't communicate in the same way we do. Whenever we look at science fiction, we try to extrapolate what these aliens would be like, but I think the science fiction really tells a lot about what we're like. We're going to be interviewing a author who wrote a book similar to this. No, not similar. Way better. Way better than what I just said. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for joining me today. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So the, the possibility of life, what, did, what inspired you to write this book and, and how did you prepare to kind of merge these two worlds of science fiction and science fact? It's such a tricky question because like in some ways, I started writing about these topics when I was in graduate school, getting my degree in writing. In other ways, this book is like my whole life coming. Does it start the first time my dad put on Star Trek The Next Generation or showed me the constellations? They're like when my grandfather took me to watch a lunar eclipse. You know, it's like my whole life has kind of been leading up to this. So I, I never know how to answer that question. Uh, I think that's one of the things about this, the search for aliens and the, the wanting there to be aliens and ETs out there. It, it does kind of bridge these generational gaps. And, and so have you always had an interest in that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's because I was interested in science and science fiction both growing up. You know, I was watching Star Trek and reading A Wrinkle in Time and Dune and everything I could get my hands on. And even there with Carl Sagan, you know, when I got into his work, I was reading Contact and I was reading Cosmos, both the science and the science fiction. And I was, you know, my grandfather had a subscription to Scientific American and I would read it or try because I found that was like right at the upper level of what I could understand. But it was just all of it was fascinating. I think it really taps into the same thing in us, which is this really pleasurable kind of imagination of understanding and knowing more than what we see in the world around us. Whether that's life on another world or, you know, how invisible atoms are working. Even though one is factual and one is speculative, they scratch a similar itch to me. Well, and that's exactly what I'm going to ask about is about, uh, <laughs> you know, sci you, you write a lot about science fiction and the creators of science fiction in the book. Like, do you, did you find these real connections of how science fiction maybe even drove some science facts or some science exploration, at least? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, some sort of familiar examples in culture, like the communicators in the original Star Trek look a lot like the flip phones that were developed decades later. Or rocket propulsion was first imagined in a sci-fi context and then later, you know, worked out in the real world. We have a liftoff. 
But one really interesting to me example that I write about in the book is this idea of Dyson spheres. Freeman Dyson is an iconoclast, a genius, and one of the great minds in physics, mathematics, and popular science. Dyson spheres are named after the scientist Freeman Dyson, who popularized the idea, which was that one way that a civilization could expand and grow and get way more power for its ongoing development and growth would be to build a sphere or more practically a like swarm of satellites all around its star so as to capture all of the energy being put off by the star. In 1960, you proposed what's now known to, to others as a Dyson sphere. You proposed it as a possible signature for super civilizations. Here on Earth, even if we covered the whole planet in solar panels, we're just getting the solar radiation that hits the Earth and the sun is shooting out in all directions. So if you surround it, you can capture all of that power. So if we're looking out there for intelligent life, uh, the construction is basically a giant sphere at about the Earth's distance from the sun around a star, then you increase your livable area by quadrillions. And Freeman Dyson always said that he got the idea for Dyson Spheres from a science fiction novel from the 1930s called Star Maker. And so when I was writing the book, I was writing about Dyson Spheres because they're one of the ways that we imagine super advanced civilizations. They're one of the ways that we think we could possibly detect alien civilizations because Dyson spheres would give off a particular uh, like energy signature that differentiates them from distant stars. So I was like, well, I got to read Star Maker. And I went and read it. And it was really one of the most wonderful surprises of my research for the book, because I was expecting a book about Dyson spheres. But it turns out that Dyson himself had found this like half a sentence of an idea about how a civilization might become very advanced in the midst of this very like most spiritual book about imagining all the different ways that life might develop and attain not just technological power, but also really deep, powerful kinds of connection across the cosmos in this book, Star Maker by Olaf Stapledon. I think that's what is important about science fiction is that it's about human people, it's about emotions, about ill problems of human life. It's not about science. But sure enough, you know, Dyson found that little half a sentence about technology that he needed in order to expand and advance the scientific conversations of his time. It's always fun to think about aliens doing things that, you know, we would like to do or dream to do. But there's this preponderance of science fiction stories and creations where the aliens are all about between five feet and seven feet tall, <laughs> uh, could wear human clothes. You know, are, are there some surprising, really wild out there theories of, of aliens like that are you know, completely different from us that, that you've read out there? Yeah, I mean... Those very human-like aliens, I think, show up a lot for two reasons. One, in movies and TV, it's practical. You know, uh, special effects are expensive and challenging. And if you can slap some pointy ears on a human actor, it's a lot easier and a lot less time in the makeup chair. Well, I can't imagine any people in their right mind exploring planet Venus. Um, but there is evolutionary logic behind it. 
you could say that we are the size that we are because that's what is not too small, not too big, you know, sort of Goldilocks for gravity and air pressure. And so on a similar planet, you might see life looking similar. Having, uh, you know, hands with grasping fingers, you might expect other intelligent life to have that so that they can also build tools and manipulate their environment. But then there are other ways of thinking that are like, this is just one solution and there's no reason to expect life to look similar at all. So when I was researching the book, I interviewed a lot of scientists, a lot of astronomers and astrobiologists about their research. And one thing I liked to ask at the end of every interview was if they had a favorite alien from sci-fi. And far and away, the most common answer I got was the aliens from the movie Arrival. Scientists love those aliens because they are really, really alien. They're called heptapods, which is, I guess, Greek for seven feet because they have seven legs, which is like not a number you see on Earth, maybe at all. It was probably like some squid, you know, with seven arms or something. Life on Earth almost entirely tends to be bilaterally symmetrical, which means mirror image on your right and left. Even a starfish, which has five limbs, can be folded in half to be symmetrical. But the heptapods in Arrival, they have seven limbs. They have a top and a bottom, but they don't have a front and a back. They have eyes all the way around their sort of bowling pin-shaped body, so they don't have to turn around to walk forwards and backwards. And their experience of the world and of time turns out to be very alien as well. And so I think that that's just one of the examples from sci-fi that is both richly described, it's not just like mysterious behind a veil, and very, very different, not just different, like truly alien to life that we see on Earth. Well, and then, the, of course, the other thing uh, when you have, you know, human actors playing aliens, you also have to figure out their language. And so alien language, uh, what's what's your kind of thoughts on that? You know, it, what are some wild non-human language ideas out there? This is the first program in a series about what I consider the most important thing in your life, your language, and how the words you use and how you have to use them actually affect the way you think and even the way you see the world. This is one of my favorites. I've, I've Something I've been asked a couple times is like, if you could know anything about an alien or if we encountered aliens, what would you want to know about them? And knowing what their language is like is probably top of the line for me. We have lots of examples of biology and physiology on Earth. We only have one kind of language. Like, there are lots of human languages, but they all come from the same kind of brain. Konnichiwa. Ninghao. Hello. Hola. And so we don't know what is fundamental to language as language and what seems fundamental, but is only fundamental on Earth. It might be totally different elsewhere. Now we're going to continue with our definition, and I want to add these terms. I want to say language is an arbitrary system of vocal symbols through which human beings interact. Like when we're speaking, 
the linearity of one word at a time is really one of the fundamental limits of language. And so it turns out that some of the most interesting imagined alien languages break that. The heptapods have a nonlinear written language. And in China Mieville's novel Embassy Town, he imagines aliens that have two mouths, essentially. Um, and so they speak two words at the same time. Which isn't just a matter of chorus. Um, there end up in that novel being other like really fundamental differences in how the aliens experience language and think and how language functions in their minds that make it almost unspeakable by humans. And the whole business that makes human societies possible so human beings can interact is this amazing business of language. Wait a second. So you're saying those <laughs> colleagues that I know of that can speak out of both sides of their mouth and say two different things at the same time, <laughs> they're, they're part alien? Is that what you're trying to say? Could be. Whoa. All right. I'm going to have to look at them differently from now on. <laughs> uh, so what do you think all this means for, you know, for humans? Why, why did the fascination that humans have for this, you know, this quest just to find alien life, where do you think that comes from? I think there are two things. One is about really wanting to know if anyone else is out there, which is about understanding how we fit into the world. Culture actually here refers of a people. Everything a group of people does in order to answer the universal problems of human existence. You know, science doesn't tell us what things mean. It just tells us what is. And so we have this gap in our worldview, in our understanding of why we're here and what it means that we're here. And one way to try to understand that better is to understand, are we rare? Are we common? Does the universe exist as a home for life or are we some beautiful fluke? In other words, mankind, wherever we find him, has the same kind of problems to face. We've all got to eat. We've all got to sleep. We all have to be able to keep out of the weather, not too cold, not too hot, all of these things. These are universal problems of human existence. The other thing that I think alien stories do for us is they give us a way of stretching our imaginations and understanding more expansively what it means to be a person. When we imagine very different kinds of aliens, we're imagining different ways for a person to be. And I don't mean a person like a human being. I mean a person like whatever it is that we are. Well, uh, this has just given us a ton to think about. Yeah, that's what I kind of think of with aliens is it, it's more, you know, when you're writing about them, it's more introspective than outrospective. You're writing how you think aliens are, but it does say so much about how you are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jamie, this has been a lot of fun talking with you about your uh, new book. It's a great read called The Possibility of Life. Uh, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. All righty. Bye-bye. Right, have a good one. Bye. So, uh, Jamie, uh, you mentioned the idea of Dyson spheres. Kind of the picture we see is uh, the artist rendering is like aliens build a whole like shell around their star and harvest it like it's pure energy. And so they're so advanced because they can build a, a shell around their star. 
you know, like I can't even get a solar panel on my roof, but they can do this whole thing. So that's one of the actual things that scientists kind of look for. And I say kind of because when astronomers mention Dyson spheres, newspaper reporters and, and the media think this is so awesome. Oh my gosh, we're going to see this someday. These astronomers are really saying this is like possible. And here's the fun part is that there's a star that seems to exhibit a very weird, unexplainable phenomenon out there. It's dimming and it's dimming pretty good in a, in a way that uh, our astronomy doesn't explain fully. Well, at least that's the old story. The old story is, yeah, the star is getting slowly dimmer and dimmer, dimmer. And then the speculation is, that's because an alien civilization is slowly constructing the Dyson sphere and little by little, panel by panel, I don't know if they have panels, but I guess whatever they're putting in front of the star to harvest it is dimming the light that's reaching us. Now, before you get super excited that Dyson spheres are out there and we're finding them, we are not. Now, is it fiction or is it fact? We don't know, although it's pretty unlikely that this is dimming this fast but maybe these aliens are really you know like you know busy you know they're really putting up the panels really fast and and dimming this down but it's most likely not that that's explaining this but that's the, still the fun thing to think about is that we may see something like that in the future man i'll put the panels up there it's gonna be pretty cool have a question or comment for the show you can get in touch with us at looking up at wvxu.org and be sure to follow 917 WVXU on Instagram and TikTok for exclusive content from the show that you won't want to miss. Looking Up with Dean Regis is a production of Cincinnati Public Radio. Ella Rowan is our show producer, audio engineer, and Star Trek fangirl. And uh, Ella, I, I think you could probably communicate with aliens. Just, yeah, yeah, just lift your eyebrows. They'll know what that means. It means speed up, Dean. Hurry up. Our theme song is Possible Light by Ziv Moran. I'm Dean Regas, and keep looking up. <laughs>